I want you to open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. If you are uh, if you're using the Bible journal that we've given out, a great resource. It's on page 60 where we're going to be starting today as we continue through this study of the book of Philippians. This fall, as you know, we have been walking through uh, Galatians. We finished a couple of weeks ago in all of our life groups. We have been uh, studying the book of Ephesians, and now we're in the book of Philippians, and then we will go into the book of Colossians uh, next. Obviously, when you look at that, it's kind of a, a great little way to remember these four books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and it's this, is Gentiles eat pork chops. That's a way to remember that. Uh, that's a freebie, has nothing to do with the sermon, but I, I heard that this week. I was like, hey, that, that's pretty good. Uh, but you can certainly uh, recognize and understand the great message that the Apostle Paul gives to us uh, in these letters that we've been studying, and today is no different. Last week, Dondi Costin did a, a wonderful job of opening Philippians chapter 1 with us and, and helping us see and understand like what this book really is all about. And if you remember by way of review, I'll give you the words that uh, that kind of the outline, if you will, of what Philippians 1 is all about that, that Dondi shared with us last week are five words, identity and community, resiliency, gallantry and consistency. That in those five elements that we find, boy, it just got dark in here, didn't it? That was kind of weird. It's like it, the sun must have gone down. But uh, identity, community, somebody's playing with the light switches. I'm not sure what's going on. Uh, and, and so we see there in that book, in, in the first uh, chapter of this book, this letter, Philippians chapter 1, like God's got some very clear statements to give to us about what our philosophy in ministry should be, what our philosophy in life. Now remember, uh, the letter to the Philippians was, was written by Paul around 60 or so AD when he was in prison in Rome, uh, not sure what the future held for him. He writes this letter to the church at Philippi, a church that about 10 years prior, he had the opportunity and the privilege of, uh, of starting, of founding that church alongside some believers that were there after he received that Acts 16 Macedonian call and as he uh, rode those ships across over into Europe and he was there. And it was interesting, and, and Dondi mentioned this last week, that in Acts chapter 16, it says that he found some people who were on the riverside and they were praying there. Now, obviously, we talk about Paul, that he went and he planted that church, and, and that's how the gospel was brought to Europe, and that began a great, great move of God as it continues even still uh, today. But, but we also recognize and understand, like, there were people who were sitting there on the riverside, and they were praying. Now, it's interesting that as they were praying, they may not have been sure exactly what they were praying for or about. This was a, a, a continent that had not yet received the gospel, had not yet received the word that, that so many had already, had already heard. But it's also interesting that they had also not been influenced by the people that the Judaizers and, and, and many others that, that were causing conflict within the church. They never had the opportunity of being around the, uh, you know, the Pharisees that we read so much about in Scripture. What we see, what we understand is that this was just simply a, a group of pure-hearted people and they were praying for God to do something. And then Paul arrives. And just as they were praying for God to do something, Paul uh, here's the call of God that came through that Macedonian call in Acts chapter 16. God brought them together and, and his church was birthed and God began to do amazing, incredible things. And now here, 10 years later, we recognize that, that Paul is writing this letter not to, to condemn them, not to criticize them, not to correct them, but rather to celebrate them, to celebrate what God was doing in their midst. 
And so as we walk through this philosophy in chapter one that we talked about last week, getting that picture, that glimpse of, of exactly what it is that, that, that God was, was doing in that place, we now move to chapter two where we move from the idea of the philosophy of ministry and we move more to the, the practice of ministry. In other words, like in chapter one, we understand like who we are. In chapter two, we should understand what we should do. And the key theme, the idea in this entire chapter of chapter two of Philippians is this, is that we need to have the the mind of Christ, that we need to have the opportunity of recognition, like that our hearts and our minds should be in concert with the mind that Jesus had of what Jesus did when he was here. Now, remember, this is now 30 years after Jesus had walked on this earth and after he had ascended into heaven. And so, look, obviously, Paul is like, hey, listen, this is the kind of heart you need to have. This is how you need to think. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to live. And so chapter two is a picture of what that looks like. And so uh, today we're just going to walk through uh, again this chapter and get a picture of like in practice and how we can have the mind and have the heart of Christ And the first, right out of the gate here in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we get a picture of how Paul is is encouraging them and celebrating them, but calling them to live in unity. So look what it says in verse 1. It says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Now, if you have a pen out and you have your Bible, your Bible journal out, if you're following along in your phone or your iPad, I would encourage you to highlight or underline or circle four different ideas here, four different statements, four requests that Paul has uh, at the church, the, to the church of Philippi and also to the church here in Lynchburg. And here's what he said in verse two, fulfill my joy by, and here it is the first one, by being like-minded. That's number one, circle that, underline that. The second one, having the same love, that's number two. Being of one accord, that's number three. Of one mind, that's number four. And the picture that's given here, the idea that's given here is that what God expects and what God intends for all of us to have today is to have a mind that is in connected to, to God's, like, like that we're thinking the way God does, but that all of us would have that same mind because we have that same mind that we would be uh, that same accord, that we would have that same love, that same path, that same desire. And as a result, all of the problems within the church of Jesus Christ today would vanish in an instant if all of us did this. If you want to know like a perfect recipe of how churches today should Uh, act and and how they should exist and what they should do in order to find the perfect church because like everyone's always looking for the perfect church and unfortunately no one has ever found the perfect church but if you want to find the perfect church then be a part of a church where every single person in that room is of one mind one accord in having the same heart the same love like if you can find that church you found the perfect church it would solve all the problems It would solve all the conflict. There would be no gossip in that church. There would be no critics in that church. There would be no criticism in that church. There would be no mocking in that church. It would be the kind of church that in every setting and in every situation honors God and honors the call of God on our hearts and on our mind. Like that is what he says. And so he's fulfilled my joy 
by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Now, naturally, this is a direct repudiation of the natural desires of men, because the natural desires of men and women, all of us, every person in this room, the natural uh, desires of our hearts is to do the complete opposite. Like, because of our sinful nature, what we desire is to not have the mind of Christ. What is natural to us is have the mind of the world. What is natural to us is to have a mind of sin. What is natural to us is to do the exact opposite of what God intends for us to do. And so what that means is that that it takes a deliberate step. We have to actually work towards the idea of having the mind of Christ. Now, how do we have the mind of Christ? What are the deliberate steps that we need to do? And I mean, it's listen, it's not a difficult thing here. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. What you must do is you must immerse yourself in a conversation with God through prayer and immerse yourself in the Word of God. And by immersing yourself in prayer and in the Word of God, what will naturally flow from that is a desire to immerse yourself in serving Him and walking with Him. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, you'll be shocked, you'll be surprised that you will be walking your life with the mind of Christ, that you'll actually find yourself doing what it is that God has called you to do. You'll find yourself walking in the the direction that God has for you. You will have revealed to you the will of God for your life, and it might even like, like sneak up and surprise you like, oh, that's it. Like, like all of a sudden, you, you are surprised because you recognize, like, man, I didn't even see that coming, what God is doing in my life. What will happen is that literally all of the issues will go away. All the problems will go away. They will vanish. They will, they will drift away. And what will be left is a heart and a mind that is in unison with, in, in harmony with, in connection with the heart of God and the mind of God. And you'll be shocked what God can do with that. Unfortunately, we live in a culture today where there is so much division because we are allowing the natural desires of man to overcome the desires of God. We're allowing the natural things that we want to to, to be more powerful and more significant and more influential in our daily journeys. And so what ends up happening is that we we lose sight of and we kind of are drifting away from the mind of Christ because we're running towards the mind of the world. And so we end up being divided. We end up in conflict. We end up in in issues and problems every single day. We wonder, like, how are we going to get through this? And so the actual idea here is that that, that to have the mind of Christ, that that statement, like, like, like-minded, it means, like, all of us need to have a different attitude. To literally have the kind of, the thought process is that, that, hey, I want to think about this situation the way that Christ would think about it. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, how different it is for us to exercise it, uh, the submissive mind, the mind of Christ. How different it is. In other words, it's different than what the world would have. It goes against everything that you could possibly imagine. It goes against what is natural. Ben Gutierrez, who's sitting right over here, he uh, wrote in a book years ago, we did a study here in 2008 on the book of Philippians talking about the mind of Christ. And in that booklet, he wrote these words. He said, when Paul penned this verse in his own language, he chose an interesting word for mind. The word mind here, the one used in Philippians chapter 2, means attitude or thinking. Therefore, the word implies that the mind of Christ is not a mere creed or a theory or a formula. It is an attitude. 
In other words, what it tells us is this, is that you can change your attitude. Like for those of us who are parents in the room, how many times have we ever been in a situation when our kids were younger and like, hey, wait, change your attitude. Parents, have you ever done that kind of thing, right? Like, hey, you need to change your attitude, kid. I mean, you're, you're doing the wrong thing here. Like, it's a choice that we make. And so, in other words, it's not like we have to be some, like, heavenly-minded person that goes beyond the realm of possibility or beyond the, the realm of, of, of realism. Like, literally, it's just a choice that we make to change our thinking, to change our mind, to change our heart, to change our attitude so that we can be in unison with one another rather than running down 25 million different tracks of thinking different things and going in different directions and wanting different things. Now, I've got four children, one of them right here on the front row. And and my kids, when they were growing up, there were many times that uh, just schedules because of all the things that were going on, like, like coming home, I'd be coming home from work and I'd, you know, call Sherry, like, hey, you want me to pick up dinner? And and so, yeah, we talked about picking up dinner. And so, you know, I said, well, tell me what you guys want. And, and so what would end up happening, rather than me like going and picking up dinner in one spot, what I would end up happening is, is, is Sherry would want one thing that usually lined up with one, what Natalie and Jessica would want. And so the girls would want one thing. And, and then, then Jonathan Jr. would want something. And then Nicholas would want something. And then I'm sitting back like, you know, trying to figure out like where I'm going to land. And there were many, many times where I would end up going through th- to three or four different restaurants to pick up food. Now, I've had people saying like, why in the world would you, why didn't you put your foot down? Because I didn't like what Sherry chose either. <laughs> and so I was like loving it because like I was getting to get what I wanted because, you know, Nicholas and Jonathan wanted what I wanted. So, you know, it worked out great. But here, like we're all thinking different things. Now, it was a pain. And, and now we're kind of in a, a season where things have changed a little bit. Now we usually only have to go two places, and so that works out pretty well. Usually it's Nicholas and me. We, we want one thing, and everybody else gets it from somewhere else, and, and it works out great. But the idea is like, like, like literally like to get our minds like in, in concert with one another, and, and when you do, it, it makes things a whole lot easier. If I could have in that time figured out like how to, all of us could like get the same exact thing for dinner— like, think of the time that I would have saved. Think of the, the conflict that would have gone away. Think of all the challenges that, you know, that, that would have made it a whole lot easier. Well, it's the same thing that's true here. Paul is writing, hey, this church in Philippi, you're doing a great job. But make sure you continue to do a great job. And, and the way you do that, because again, you're only 10 years old. It's a new church. And man, God's doing some great things there. Hey, make sure you keep your hearts and minds together. Stay focused on the right things. Stay focused in the right direction. Be unified. Can you imagine what would happen today if, if the church of Jesus Christ, and, and, and I make that statement like, like globally, the church of Jesus Christ, if the church of Jesus Christ could be unified in mission, unified in heart, and unified in spirit, can you imagine what could happen if that would take place? Okay, let's personalize it. Can you imagine what would take place, what would happen if, if just the people who worship in this room every week, if we could be unified in mission, in heart, in mind, in spirit, like if we could all be on the same page, desiring the same thing, wanting the same things, recognizing their differences. I'm not saying everybody has to be a robot here, but, but like if we're all on the same path, going the same direction of reaching the city of Lynchburg with the gospel of Jesus Christ, can you imagine the impact that we would make. 
You see, Paul understands, and, and God, through his Holy Spirit, like, like makes this clear. Like, hey, if, if you're unified in mind, if you're unified in spirit, if you're unified in love, if there's not division among you, if you're unified, then what will happen is, is you will see God do what you could never have even imagined. And so in the first two verses, he makes it clear, man, like live in unity. But then he continues. Because what he recognizes is this, is if we're living in unity, the way to do that, it flows from, uh, from a heart of, and, and it fosters living with humility. Which, by the way, living with humility is the only possibility of living in unity. Look what it says in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being formed or found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Go back to verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, the, the model that we have, the, 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 the sample that we have here, like the, the, the example, the picture of like how to do this is exactly who Christ was. That's why it's so important you study the Word of God so you get to know who Christ was. If you get to know who Christ is, guess what? It changes you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, so understanding that, this little passage we just read here of how to walk and, and how to have the mind of Christ we're given the first steps towards having the mind of Christ. And I'll just give these to you quickly from verses 3 and 4. The first one is this, is don't serve for you. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. In other words, now it says, like, make sure that you're not always looking at this question when you're doing what you do and what you want to accomplish. Don't always ask the question, what's in it for me? Don't always ask yourself, like, well, what can I get out of this? Like, what's the benefit to me? And, and unfortunately, that is the question that so many people today ask. That's where we start. When someone asks us to do something to help them, or if, if we're thinking about like what road we're going to travel, or, or maybe what career we're going to choose, or what, maybe what, what major we're going to choose. Like, it's always like, hey, what's in this for me? Like, like you know, how, what can I make? And, and what can I get from this? What can I gain from this? And yet, this passage says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Now, this is a familiar verse, but you ought to underline, highlight, circle something. Highlight the word nothing. Because if you're asking, the, asking yourself the question like, so what should not be done in selfish ambition? Well, clearly what God's Word says, let nothing be done with selfish ambition. In other words, always in every situation, in every decision, in every direction, in every choice, in every place you go, in every person you interact with, in every conversation you have, like let nothing that you do be all about you. Make sure that you're focusing your heart on the lives of others and the hearts of others and the minds of others. And so it says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. So don't serve for you. But then it goes on to say, 
don't serve for glory. So it says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition, and here's this next word, or conceit. In other words, don't always be looking for what's in it for me, but also don't do what you do so that you will be celebrated. One thing I know is this, is God did not create you and put you on the face of the earth so that you could be put on a pedestal. God created you and put you on this earth so that you could bring all honor and glory to Him and to Him alone. The greatest problem we have in the church today, in this church, in any church, in every church, every church on the face of the earth, the greatest problem that we have on the face of the earth today within the local churches that exist is this, is that so often people are doing what they do, even serving within the church for the purposes of getting a pat on the back and getting celebrated. We want it to be like, look what I did. We want people to notice what we've accomplished. We want people to notice what we've been able to do. And here's what God says in His Word. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. It is not about you. It is not for you. It is all for Him. If you make that the narrative of your journey, make that the narrative of your life, make that the the, the driving force behind what you do and why you do it, here's what it'll do. It will change your life. If all you care about is God getting the glory, then man, the pressure's off. Because you're not going to be sitting back thinking, what are people thinking about me? I wonder if they like me. I wonder if I did that well. I wonder if they like what I said. I wonder if I offended anyone. I wonder if everybody like enjoyed that joke that I told. I wonder if everybody you know, liked the way that I put together that volunteer effort. I wonder if like the way they set up the, you know, the, the parking lot today. Like if you're not worried about what other people think and rather you are worried about what God thinks because you want Him to get the glory, it changes the narrative, it takes the pressure off, and man, it fills your heart with joy that only God can give. Let nothing be done. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Or conceit. And so if we're not serving for us, and if we're not doing it for our glory, then naturally what happens there is that we're putting others first. And that this passage says, verse 4, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, if you will learn to put Jesus first, naturally what comes with it is you'll put others first. If you're putting Jesus first in everything that you do, like you probably don't really even have to worry much about putting others first because the two go hand in hand. You can't do one without the other. You can't put Jesus first in everything that you do in life without also just naturally putting others first. And that's what this passage tells us. And so God makes it very clear, like, don't let it all be about you. Don't look what it's in for you. Like, don't lift up your name. Don't elevate your name. Give all the praise, all the honor, all the glory to Christ. Put others first. And what naturally comes from that is that we see this picture of having this different attitude, the mind of Christ, an attitude that is completely the polar opposite of what the world would have. And so understanding that, then here in this passage, this letter that Paul's writing God helps us to see like an example of what this mind looks like as we continue in this passage. Because what we see is that Jesus emptied himself, as J. Vernon McGee says, of the prerogatives of deity. Let's listen to what it says here in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation 
taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death. Now, I mentioned J. Vernon McGee a moment ago and I've got a, a statement that he made about this passage. He said this, Christ emptied himself. The question is, of what did he empty himself? There are those who say he emptied himself of his deity. There was never a moment, though, when he was not God. I believe that he emptied himself of the prerogatives of deity. He lived on this earth with certain limitations, but they were self-limitations. And so here in this passage, what we see is this, is that God, uh, through his son Jesus, Jesus set aside his glory and became a man. Now you think about that statement for a moment, the picture of like putting others first, the, the picture of like, like, you know, understanding this a life of humility. Can you imagine being the son of God and sitting at the right hand of the father, sitting in heaven, and we studied this summer, like what, what, what the throne room, what all the picture, like what, it's, what, it's, what it looks like and the, the amazing, you know, idea that our minds can't even comprehend how great it is. Can you imagine Jesus sitting in that place for all of eternity has been there forever. Like there's never been a beginning point. That's where he's been. And yet he was willing to step out of that room to become a man, to become like you and me. Like that's a a perfect picture that he was willing to lower himself. Now, he did not empty himself of deity. He didn't come to this earth and leave, you know, his, his deity, he leave the fact that he's God. He didn't leave that in heaven. It came with him, but he imparted upon himself, he placed upon himself limitations, self-limitations when he walked on this earth as a man. He became a servant. Look what it says there. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he became a servant. And then ultimately, obviously, he died as a a criminal would die, which is the ultimate humiliation. It says that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so here in this passage, Paul writes this this picture of what Jesus did to give us again an example of like, Jesus himself did exactly what I'm telling you that you should do. And you're sitting back thinking like, man, how, you know, living that kind of life, that's a tough thing, that's a difficult thing. But, but look what God's response to that kind of life looks like. Verse 9, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father. So how did God respond to this humility that Jesus took on, this this statement, this life change that he took on for that season to bring the gift of justification, of salvation to all of us. He was highly exalted. Salvation came through that gift and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Here's what the the point of this whole passage I believe is, this, this section that we've just been reading is this, is that God will always reward you for having the mind of Christ. You cannot have the mind of Christ and God not respond in a way that will blow your mind, that will take you to a level you could never have imagined. God will respond in incredible ways. Now, obviously, living in uh, unity and living in humility will always kind of lead to, and it it kind of brings us to this picture of how we can live well. And that's what the next passage here, how to live well. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, 
not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining or disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now here he talks about, okay, so you're living in unity and you're living in humility, but now make sure you're living well. And how do we do that? Well, the first statement he gives to us here is a work out your own salvation. Now understand that is not a declaration that salvation is based on your works. And in fact, it's the complete opposite. What he's saying is, hey, you are a child of God. You have been given this incredible uh, unmerited favor. God has saved you. Uh, through grace, God has saved you through your faith in Christ. You have turned from your, your, your natural self and now you are, are, are a child of God. You're a saint because of what Christ has done because he died and rose again. And so because of that, you have everything within you that you need to be able to work through the situations, the issues, the attacks, the conflicts, the challenges that, that are all around you. Work it out. And you can do that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is within you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling, what is that? That means you're supposed to walk the light like scared to death? No, fear and trembling in the sense of this. What an amazing, holy, incredible gift that God has given to us in the gift of his son and the gift of salvation. And because of that, in reverent fear of him. I wanna make sure that every decision that I make and everything that I do and every action that I take and every choice that I, that I make, everything I do, I wanna do it in reverent fear before God, recognizing who he is and what he's done. He goes on to tell us in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. You got to circle that one. Wouldn't that be great if we lived in a world where everybody did everything without complaining or disputing? Like, you know, Facebook would go out of business. Twitter would be gone. I mean, they wouldn't exist if you're doing everything without complaining and disputing. If you were doing everything in the heart of God with the mind of Christ, it changes everything. In other words, we are called to be different than the world. There is nothing that makes Satan happier than when he sees the church of Jesus Christ complaining and disputing. Let me say that again because I want that to sink in. There is nothing that brings more joy to the heart of Satan then when he sees the church of Jesus Christ, which is supposed to be of one mind, when he sees us complaining and disputing, divided, arguing about everything. Satan sits back with his arms crossed and thinks, man, I'm having an impact. I'm having an impact. Don't let that be your story. Don't let that be who you are. John Calvin stated it this way, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. In other words, it's not our works that save us, but once we are saved, it should drive and give us a passion to do works, to do the right things, to serve God in the way that he's called us to work. Because the only way to actually be different than the world is to be influenced differently than the world. The world today is being influenced by all the things of this world and all the things of evil, no question. But we need to make sure that what we are influenced by is the word of God. That's why it says in verse 16, holding fast the word of life. 
so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Max Anders says it this way, Christians must demonstrate they are saved by allowing God to work through them. Salvation by grace through faith. Saving faith surrenders all of life to God and his purpose, producing a maturity demonstrated in good works. But as Christians mature and allow God to work through their lives, they find that God is accomplishing his purposes in them even when they are not aware of those purposes. In other words, God will save you through faith and faith alone. And once God saves you, live differently. With the mind of Christ, act differently. Treat others differently. Serve differently. Live in unity. You live in, in, in humility. Live well. But then finally it comes to this last part of the passage and live in community. Paul writes this in verse 17, I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Now Paul here is given a very clear statement, a picture of what he's talking about, this idea of his life being poured out as a drink offering. Warren Wearsby said that the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the drink offering all represent dedication to God and commitment to him and his work. What Paul is saying is this, is I want my life sitting in jail, not knowing if he was gonna die very soon. Sitting in jail, he said, all I want my life to be is to be nothing more than a vapor that is poured out on the altar for God. Recognize that everything that I've accomplished is not to elevate the name of Paul. It's not about Paul. It's not what I've done. It's not what I can do. It's all about him. I pour my life out for that reason alone. Now he goes on in the rest of this passage and he talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. He talks about Timothy as being who's a co-laborer who's serving with him and walking with him. He talks about Epaphroditus who could have been the pastor, probably the pastor there at the church of Philippi that he was going to send him back and, and recognize and understand like we have a responsibility to live in community. That we have a responsibility to recognize as we have the mind of Christ, that naturally having the mind of Christ, living in unity and humility, what will end up happening is we will be drawn together and that we will not do this thing called life alone. Because God wraps his arms around us, he gathers us together and together then we can face whatever this world has to offer. That we can go up against anything this world might throw at us. Why? Because when Christ is at the center of your heart, when you're walking through life with the mind of Christ, then your eyes and your heart are always fixed on what is ahead, not what is here. And if our eyes are always fixed on what is ahead and not what is here, then facing what is here becomes a whole lot easier. So all of this picture goes back to the song that we together were singing right before I got up to speak. That song, In Christ Alone. And the whole picture we get from chapter two of this letter is just simply this. Fix your heart on Christ. Make it all about Him. Live for Him. Walk with Him. Serve Him. Act like Him. And if you'll do that, everything that you know, the conflicts, the challenges, and the pain of this world, they won't go away. But you will walk through them with a joy you never thought possible. That's what God gives, all through the gift of his son. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the hope that it brings and the life that it gives. And Father, right now in this room, people watching or listening, wherever they might be, I, I pray that God, if there's someone here today who has never come to that place where they have allowed you through your son Jesus to bring transformation, God, I pray right now would be that point, that they would recognize that they are a sinner as we all are, that we've fallen short of the glory of God, which we all have, that we deserve separation from God for eternity, which we all do, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, I pray that right now they will make the decision to turn away from their sin and believe in faith that Jesus is your son, that he died and rose again and that today they will be saved. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, in a moment we're going to conclude our service. Our team is going to be gathered here at the front. Men and women who would love to talk with you about the statement that I just made in prayer. Because today you might be here and you're like, man, that all sounds great, but I don't know this Christ whom you're talking. I don't know anything about him. I don't know what that means. I've heard about him, read about him. But like, what does that mean to me? Listen, if you're here today and you don't know for sure, like one million percent sure that Christ is Lord of your life, that he has saved you, that you have believed in him, that he he died and he rose again for you. If you've never done that when this service is over, the first thing I want you to do is to make a beeline to the stage, to come down and to talk with one of our, our team members here and just say, listen, man, tell me about that Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're away from God. Maybe you've been not having the mind of Christ. Maybe you're having the mind of the world. Maybe worse, maybe you're having the mind of Satan. Like you've been running like down a path you know that is like diametrically opposed to everything Jesus wants you to do. Today, maybe you want to come and kneel here and just pray, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And God, today I'm turning it around. Maybe you want to come and join our church family or come for baptism, whatever today that the Holy Spirit of God is is tweaking in your heart, like making you hear and and speaking into your ear. I pray that that when this service is over, you will make your way to the front and say, hey, listen, I want to get things right. God, I pray for every person here, whoever they are, wherever they are, whatever they do, however they live. God, I pray that today they will not walk out of this room without making sure they are right with you. And God, for that, we will give you the praise because you've promised us that we can never be outside of the love of God. So God, I pray today, change hearts and guide us today. God, for that, we give you praise, we give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The altar's open. I encourage you to make your way to the front. God bless you. Read Philippians 3 for next week. Have a good day. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this journey of faith in Jesus Christ. So send us an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, well, we're here to help you. So just reach out to us. We'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. And if you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, then go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.